الجزيرة بودكاست Will Vladimir Putin go nuclear in Ukraine? The Russian president said he will deploy nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus. So could the war take a new turn? And how might NATO respond? I'm Nick Clark, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, pleased to say we can join our guests now. Joining me in Moscow is Pavel Felgenhauer, who's a defense and military analyst in Utrecht. Susie Snyder is joining us, program coordinator at the campaign, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And in London, Samuel Romani, who is an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. A warm welcome to all of you. Uh, Pavel, if I could start with you in Moscow. So Vladimir Putin says all this is in response to a long-standing request from the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko. Safe to say there's more to it than that. Lukashenko has been uh, for some time publicly lamenting that he made a grave mistake in the 90s when he uh, repatriated former Soviet nuclear weapons from the territory of Belarus uh, to Russia and and turned uh, Belarus into a non-nuclear state that uh, if he would have retained, he said, these weapons and Belarus would be better off. And he was asking Moscow to return some weapons back. And well, right now, Russia sort of agreed. And but uh, this is more a political, of course, bargaining thing. The military significance is, well, there is, of course, military significance, but this is primarily a political move to reinstate some nuclear weapons in Belarus. And of course, that will happen somewhere in the second half of 23 of the earliest. Isn't it just about really all it's about? It's just raising the threat level, Pavel? Well, yes, it raises to some extent the threat level, though apparently these weapons will be kind of a double key mimicking what the American nukes in Europe are. Double key meaning it needs uh, okay from Washington and respective European capitals for usage. And here it will be uh, Belarusian air, uh, aircraft and Belarusian uh, missiles supplied by Russia, uh, short-range uh, ballistic uh, Iskanders that could uh, are nuclear capable, and there'll be some Russian nuclear weapons stored that may be attached to them. Uh, but of course, uh, this may give additional capabilities, but not mu- that much. This is not the uh, Cuban missile crisis of the 1962. Mm. Because, well, Russia has the Kaliningrad enclave and it has nuclear capable weapons. And apparently, though officially it's not confirmed, okay. nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad. And Kaliningrad is more to the west than Belarus Let, and more or less covers. Let's get the, the view now from you, Tractor. Pavel, thanks for that. Uh, so, Susie Snyder, does this ramp up the danger of escalation, do you think? Well, it absolutely does increase the danger level. I mean, any time that you start moving nuclear weapons around, there are lots of risks. And what we're seeing here is the add the addition of new actors into the decision-making process, and that opens the door to, to miscommunication, to accident, um, even under a double-key arrangement. There's still safety issues that are of grave concern. Not only that, 
but it also introduces the possibility of further use of nuclear weapons or the use of the weapons, which would be catastrophic no matter where they are targeted. And Samuel, that's the thing, isn't it? Because just the mere mention of the word nuclear makes everybody sit up and take notice. And, and this is the president using that, that kind of ramping up of the threat level, using the uncertainty uh, to what he would perceive to be his advantage. Well, I think that that's been a long-standing Russian policy that really dates back uh, long before this conflict. I think that uh, we saw that the Russians use the threat of nuclear weapons to deter uh, Western arms shipments to Ukraine, especially the movement of tanks and fighter jets. That clearly has failed as a deterrent. So now he basically is rationing up the threat as NATO support for Ukraine continues one year into the war. And what Susie is saying, also, you can add, throw into the pot the fact that the moving weapons to Belarus moves them closer to Poland, to Latvia, and to Lithuania, doesn't it? Well, it definitely does. And this has been in the motion for over a year now because the Belarusians held a referendum last year. 65% of the people voted to keep these uh, nuclear warheads on their soil, supposedly under those uh, non free and fair conditions. And then the preparations were well underway. And given the fact that Russia has had so many tensions with Poland and Lithuania over issues ranging from the trade from Kaliningrad to uh, Poland's uh, very hawkish support for the Ukrainian uh, cause, early movement of tanks, in rapid increases in defense spending to 3% of GDP, and Lithuania has effectively annihilated its diplomatic presence inside Russia, this is clearly a warning shot and a threat to both of those countries, as well as a show of solidarity with Belarus, because since the 2020 protests, Belarus has said that its sovereignty is being threatened by NATO, by Poland, by Lithuania, and now Ukraine. And this plays into uh, Lukashenko's propaganda as well. Uh, Susie, outside of the, the general nuclear threat, how do you think, how do you perceive the game on the ground uh, within the, the auspices of the, the Ukrainian conflict? How does it change that, do you think? Well, again, it's what it does is it brings, again, like I said, more actors into this. Um, and it also, it raises the likelihood of the use of nuclear weapons. And that is something that we have seen repeatedly, um, makes people in Ukraine, makes people in Eastern Europe, makes people here in my neighborhood in Utrecht, uh, you know, an hour's drive away from U.S. nuclear weapons, nervous. And it increases our, our concern to the point that last year we had a run on iodine tablets, um, not just in, in Ukraine, where, um, where we've seen images of school teachers trying to explain to children where they need to go in the case of the use of a nuclear weapon. And we've had gener a generation that this hasn't been at the topmost of people's mind. And yet now it is. And we know we know without a fact that any use of nuclear weapons on any population would be catastrophic and there is no humanitarian response. Now, we can imagine the horrifying result to introduce nuclear weapons into the current conflict in which there's already almost no humanitarian capacity left. And to bring, to bring this possibility, to bring the long-term effects of a nuclear weapon into this um, would be just be terrifying and, and catastrophic. All right, we can see the threat. Uh, Pavel, what about the timeline here? You mentioned later in 2023, the experts are saying that there is, as yet, doesn't appear to be any satellite imagery that suggests that there is a, a nuclear weapon storage facility is being built in Belarus at this point in time. What do you think about the, the timeline? Is Vladimir Putin exaggerating the, how soon all this will happen? Uh, yes, of course, you need... Um, uh, uh, nuclear special facility of the 12th main directorate 
of the Russian Defense Ministry to keep the uh, and maintain the uh, nuclear devices when they're not attached to delivery systems. Lukashenko has boasted a couple of years ago that he, when he was asking for Russian nuclear weapons, that he maintained in good order the nuclear facilities, the so-called S-bunkers, that were in Belarus during the Cold War and Soviet times, when of course the Belarusian military district was one of the main and most militarized parts of the Red Army. And so right now you don't have to build it, you have to sort of renovate it and see that it's in working order. And that's basically what Putin was saying, that we're going to renovate them. It, so it won't really take that much time to prepare most likely. The other thing is, does the Russian military really want to have nuclear weapons, uh, any large numbers on Belarusian territory? Because even if it's under Russian kind of control, there's uh, the Belarusian military there, and uh, Lukashenko has demonstrated and said that he would maybe want to have some nuclear weapons of his own to maintain his rule using a nuclear uh, blackmail. Uh, so there could be some dragging of feet by the Russian military because deployment in Belarus does not bring that much military direct uh, uh, dividend, but brings some risks. So yes, Putin said it will be after in the 1st of July, but will there be there? How many? Will there be these real nuclear weapons or just dummies to make mm. Lukashenko happy? That's an open question. That's an interesting side to all this, Susie, isn't it? The, the fact that uh, Russia deploying nuclear weapons in Belarus could end up being a threat to Russia itself. Well, absolutely. And I think that's something that is often underestimated. The use of any of these weapons, including what are so-called these tactical weapons, which are often described as smaller, they're still nuclear weapons. They have a massive impact, much bigger than conventional forces. And the use of these weapons would have a detrimental effect on soldiers, whether they be Russian, Belarusian, or Ukrainian, as well as on civilian populations. And I thought Pavel's reference to, to the idea of hanging on to, to weapons in the future in order to kind of do a sort of nuclear blackmail um, is quite, it's quite a, a powerful statement because that's what we see constantly. We see the threat of, of nuclear weapons use as a way to blackmail, to coerce activity that otherwise the international community would not stand for. And it is very unfortunate. And it's why the successful actions we've seen every time we've seen steps back from this has been all, a tremendous condemnation from the international community for these types of escalatory activities. Samuel, what about the argument, the Russian president's arguments? Uh, you know, what are Putin saying? Well, you know, Europe, you host US nuclear weapons. Why should we not dispatch some to Belarus? Perhaps, first of all, just tell us which countries host US weapons and how does it work? How many US bombs are there, as far as you know? I would like to say that, you know, first of all, there's bombs that are located in several different countries. First of all, you have Germany, you have Turkey, you have Belgium, you have Italy. So there are areas where nuclear weapons are being stored. Um, I, I think that, you know, the NATO sharing uh, is the analogy that Russia is obviously using, but Germany has said that that's definitely not the case because this is an act of proliferation and also Russia has uh, really escalated the nuclear brinkmanship. Moreover, Russia has withdrawn suspension from New START, 
which uh, also followed the allegations that it had been non-compliant with the INF agreement, which Trump uh, withdrew from unilaterally, have points to a broader tendency of both Russia using nuclear threat monitoring as well as uh, sabotaging international arms treaties. And when he re they rejected dialogue with the United States and Cairo about inspections, it seems to be a rejection of diplomacy and dialogue as well. So it's less that Russia is even proliferating these nuclear weapons, because uh, the U.S. and NATO have done that too, but it's uh, more in the context of Russia's other actions that makes this such an alarming and such a concerning thing, I think. But you can see, Sami, you can see Putin's point, can't you? The U.S. and Europe work together, so why shouldn't Russia and Belarus? Uh, notwithstanding the, the, the wholesale nuclear threat, which obviously is enormous, but as far as his strategy is concerned. Well, that's interesting, because NATO's statement about the Russian nuclear deployment said that there's no discernible change that we've noticed in the Russian nuclear doctrine. So the Russian nuclear doctrine, as has been restated many, many times since the start of the war, sometimes as a veiled threat, is that Russia will only strike the uh, with nuclear weapons if it feels its territorial integrity or its security is under some kind of immediate threat. But the problem is it defines its territorial integrity very differently to include illegally occupied regions of Ukraine, Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kurzon, Zaporizhia. You get the picture here. So Russia is effectively not only broadening the proliferation regime by going from uh, towards Belarus, but also threatening to use nuclear weapons to effectively justify illegal occupations and illegal seizures of territory. It's using nuclear threats to justify violations of international law, whereas NATO's nuclear weapons use are through sovereign agreements with, with respective member states and are being used to defend the sovereignty of countries under international legal frameworks. So what NATO has done is illegal, illegal and above board. What Russia has done is clearly illegal. Uh, Pavel, what do you make of that? Yeah, Russia using uh, threats to justify the violations of the international law? Well, Russia is using, of course, its nuclear arsenal uh, for nuclear deterrence, basically. And that's how nuclear weapons have been used since 1945 by all sides. And that's basically legitimate because, uh, well, uh, that's what nuclear weapons were made for, for deterrence, which is the same time, same word for brinkmanship, or, or actually it's more or less like blackmail, but it works. Uh, so that's when Russia threatens that there's a, uh, uh, says that there's a possibility of uh, usage of nuclear weapons because it's involved in a, a rather high-intensity military conflict and, and it is a nuclear superpower. Yes, that's true. And that's a normal use of nukes. Uh, but going from there over the nuclear threshold to actually use them, well, that's a totally different story. And that does not seem right now, it can't, you can't say that it is impossible. It's not that it's zero uh, possibility. It's not zero, but it's not very high right now because going over the threshold, well, nuclear deterrence works both ways. And uh, Russia most likely does not want to go into a nuclear confrontation at all. And it, uh, using it in a limited way against Ukraine also wouldn't bring Russia much dividends uh, politically or actually militarily. So right now, I believe it's going to be there in the domain of deterrence and blackmail. And that's where it's going to stay for the foreseeable future. I hope. Susie, do you want to come back at, at that, uh, the use of nuclear weapons? Uh, not very lightly, not very high right now. Well, I'm sorry. With all due respect, we've seen overt threats to use nuclear weapons, which we have not seen 
for generations. The risk of use is higher and it's been, you know, across the board, everyone acknowledges the risk is higher than it has been perhaps since the initiation of the Cold War. And while we'd like to all believe that the, the use is unlikely, let's be really honest here. There are nine men in the world who decide whether or not to use nuclear weapons, and we cannot imagine what is going through their brain at any given moment. Nine individuals who make that decision to push the button or not. Nine guys. So that the, the threat perception of any one of those nine could change rapidly and could lead to the initiation of the use of nuclear weapons. And we know that once the order is given, it is minutes until it is executed, and it's less than an hour until missiles arrive where they're destined to go. So the fact that we have um, come, seen these, these threats and we're not taking these threats as seriously as we should, that is extremely concerning. And I think that what we have seen over the last year is because the threats have escalated, because there's been an erosion of a taboo against even threatening the use of nuclear weapons, states are responding. And states, particularly the states that have signed on to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, have made the strongest multilateral condemnation of these threats ever. And as a result, they have been walked back. And it is absolutely necessary for any state that does not want to see this threat to continue to sign on to that treaty and to put their money where their mouth is. Samuel Romani, I'm going to come to you in just a second, but I just want to throw that to Pavel in Moscow. Uh, do you want to respond to uh, Susie's comments there, Pavel? Well, as I say, usage is possible. The possibility is not zero, but not very high. And of course, uh, usage in several minutes, that's only about uh, strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, they are on readiness. Uh, the tactical ones are not really so. You have to attach the weapons uh, to the delivery systems. The same delivery systems are being used in Ukraine, like the Iskander and other cruise missiles, which are also nuclear capable. Now they're used uh, conventionally. So you have to attach the warheads, and that will be noticed. Uh, in, by, say, the American spy satellites, they'll notice that the Russians are preparing for usage, or and they don't see that preparation happening, or the Russians will notice it. The Americans are actually okay. uh, uh, attaching the nukes to the delivery systems. So we're not yet in the, in the minutes zone. We're talking about a longer time period where you can actually try and negotiate something on hotlines and not just simply press the button and go. Right, Susie, I, I can see you want to jump in, but I'll come back to you in just a second. Samuel, what about the, Susie was talking about the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. Uh, doesn't this move undermine Moscow's obligations? Well, I think it does to a degree, obviously, though the Russians would come back with some kind of uh, most likely disinformation or exaggerated information about Britain bringing uranium shells into Ukraine which I think seems to be an extension of some of the dirty bomb conspiracies that we saw the Russians come up with and convey to the Americans and the British and the French back in October. But going back to well, the UK has question, been supplying ammunition with depleted uranium, isn't it? Not the same as a nuclear weapon, but still. Not, not, not the same, but that's what the Russians are going to likely retort with. In fact, I think this announcement and the timing of this announcement, even though it was a contingency policy that mm. goes back a year, was directly related to Britain's announcement about the uranium shells. But just to go back,
back to the broader question, the broader point that we're trying to discuss here. I agree that there's a non-zero chance of Russia using nuclear weapons, but I think the peak of that in the short term has faded because I think in well, my research in September, but Putin faced a very difficult choice, either to surrender, mobilize, or use nuclear weapons. It was fairly clear that China in particular pushed Putin not to use nuclear weapons. And when we look at Xi Jinping's meeting in Moscow last week, no use of nuclear weapons, as well as uh, no uh, bombing or destruction of nuclear power plants are two of the 12 points of that peace plan. So I think that even if the West and Russia are not having dialogue about nuclear weapons right now, and that's a very disturbing trend because of Russian obstructionism, China at least is still putting some pressure on Russia to back off. So that's why I think the chances are very low. Uh, Susie, just come, uh, 30 seconds, we've just got to move on, but just come back to that if you would. Well, I think we've, what we've seen is that Putin had three things at his disposal, energy, a massive conventional force, and the possibility of, of use of nuclear weapons. The energy risks and the conventional force we've seen have been decimated. I worry about how close he is to authorizing that nuclear strike, which, as Pavel noted, we are minutes away from a strategic strike. I don't want to worry populations. I think I don't think it's extremely likely, but it is of desperate concern, and we need to make sure that governments take this seriously and condemn it at the least. Okay, let's shift away slightly from this uh, the threat issue and to, to that of Belarus itself. Pavel, you mentioned it a bit earlier. What's their role in all of this? Is it acting willingly, or does it just have to accept Russia's plans? Well, actually, this is most likely mostly uh, Lukashenko's uh, idea to deploy uh, nuclear weapons in Belarus and use Belarusian delivery systems as uh, to deliver these Russian weapons. So he would want to have a nuclear kind of capability at, as proxy, at least. I mean, after the rather disastrous 2020 August presidential elections, his regime was a bit wobbly. There was massive anti-government demonstrations, and he would want to, and of course, lots of Western sanctions imposed. So right now, Lukashenko would want to be seen as a nuclear-capable leader, like, say, the leaders of uh, uh, North Korea. And, the and how, how does that go down with his survive. people? Sorry to jump in, but how, how does that go down with his people, with, with the people of Belarus? Do they support this? Well, it's hard to say because right now Belarus is a rather, well, very tightly controlled society. Want the people really think about that. But we, you should notice that uh, Lukashenko, despite being kind of uh, threatening that possibly he would go also in some conditions in the conflict with Ukraine, has not mobilized his military. And the standing of Belarusian military is tiny. Most likely he's afraid of calling in large numbers of reservists because you never know really in Belarus who they're going to uh, uh, turn their weapons against. So he still has a rather wobbly regime. Economically, he's in a very tight spot because he was always surviving on kind of mediating between Russia and the West, and now he's lost that capability. So maybe he sees nuclear, nuclear weapons as a kind of source of last resort. Okay, I just want to try and squeeze in a couple more questions. Uh, first one to Samuel. Samuel, uh, so Ukraine has called for an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council. It's not going to happen, is it? Well, I think it's extremely unlikely to happen. And also, even if it did happen, it's extremely unlikely to produce any kind of guaranteed results, in part because China has traditionally backed Russia 
on the issue of arms control. As I said earlier, they may not be wanting Russia to be using nuclear weapons, but they certainly had not refused to join New START negotiations when the United States has tried to loop them in, in part because they feel that the Western nuclear weapons supplies, particularly the ones that are being held in Europe, are not sufficiently regulated by international treaties. So I think that China and Russia will definitely block this kind of investigation, and uh, it won't go anywhere in the UN Security Council. Susie, finally, if we could, we've got about a minute and a half left or so. In general, what would you say the Ukraine war has done for nuclear proliferation? And once the war is over, how do we rebuild the trust that has clearly been lost? Well, what we've seen is that it has brought the issue of nuclear weapons to the front of people's attention. And it's an issue that we thought was maybe gone and possibly forgotten, and it is not. We have seen that states are overwhelmingly, more states are joining the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons to reject any suggestion of nuclear weapons use, any threat or any possession of nuclear weapons, then they are leaning towards nuclear weapons as some sort of security strategy. And I think it's two to one, really. Um, there are more states rejecting the option of nuclear weapons. That is a pathway forward. And to move forward after this war is over, we need to deny anyone the option of holding the world blackmail to their nuclear weapons again. This, it, it calls for urgent action for complete negotiations to eliminate all arsenals. Fortunately, there's a treaty that makes the weapons illegal and provides a pathway towards their complete elimination. And that is the next step all around. Susie, thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, and thank you indeed to all our guests, uh, Pavel Felgenhauer, uh, Susie Snyder, and Samuel Romani. Thanks very much indeed for this important discussion. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alaishi, Ferdi Akar, Ingrid Nguyen, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison, and the program was edited by Andre Ustusen, Lynn Nguyen, and Joda Fritz. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next episode.